In the past few weeks, we've been studying the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And we live in a a culture and in a time when many people say, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. But there is no absolute truth. But according to God's word, church, there is absolute truth. His name is Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except by me. His Word is truth. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. There is absolute truth. And on this Resurrection Sunday, I want to give you seven absolute truths concerning the resurrection. I want us to look at the words of Jesus from the cross. And what He says on the cross and how that is truth for us today. And that truth makes a difference in our lives. So I want to begin with the first verse in Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is is difficult to breathe. He is in great agony, great pain. And it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a powerful prayer that Jesus was praying. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first truth I want us to understand today is total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, every sin was paid for. Jesus paid for all of our failures, for everything that we did that's contrary to God's law. And today we come and the resurrection verifies the fact that it is done, that He accomplished what He set out to do, and that we have total forgiveness. Can you say, thank you, Jesus? Now the word in the Greek means to remove the sins from another. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. And he doesn't just remove the guilt of sin. All of us have experienced the guilt of sin. Experienced condemnation coming. And God's word says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. We are forgiven. He totally cleanses us. He removes that sin. And what's interesting is the the Bible uses one of my favorite words. We translate it justified. It's a legal term that would be used in a court of law. And an example would be a judge taking the gavel at the end of the trial, hitting the gavel and saying, you're innocent. Innocent as if you have never done it. Amen? Amen? And that's what Jesus has done for us. God has removed our sin from us. We are declared innocent because Jesus took all of our sin. And today we celebrate and we have confidence because Jesus didn't remain in the tomb. He was raised from the dead. Now man has a tendency to want to justify himself. We see that with the the lawyer... In Luke chapter 10, 
Verse 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, you know the law. He quotes it. That you should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then, in verse 29, the lawyer says, It says, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Church, we can't justify ourselves. It's not about going out and doing so many deeds. It's not about giving gifts or or doing things that are good. We do those, church. We do those good acts, not because we're earning our justification or forgiveness, because we can't. We do those out of a heart of love and we want to minister to others and bless others. So that's why we go and we do the good things. Not because we're earning our salvation. It's because we have received total forgiveness through Christ Jesus. Amen? The second thing I want us to see today. Jesus is on the cross in Luke chapter 23 again, verse 43 this time. He says, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now what I want us to focus on is the word today. He said, today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. When we die, when we take the last beat of our heart, last breath here, we are instantly, if we are in Christ, if we have committed our lives to Him, we are instantly in His presence. Amen? We don't go into some type of suspended animation. We're instantly in His presence. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. He said, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then verse 8, he says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. How many are thankful for that? Church, there is a heaven. And it is filled with the presence of God. And the moment that we die in this life, we are instantly carried into the presence of God. Years ago, when I was a young pastor, the first church that I ever pastored, I had a mentor. His name was L.D. Collier. He, he was a doctor of ministry, and, and he uh, was a great teacher, great evangelist, and he uh, took me on as a case. <laughs> and he became a mentor and a good friend to me. But he had an, an astounding testimony because he had had multiple heart attacks. And one time, he was rushed to the hospital. He had had a heart attack. They had taken him into the emergency room. The doctors were around him, the technicians, the nurses. The room was filled with several people. And they were trying to work on him and, and revive him. And he passed away. And he said, he said, Milt, he said, I passed away. And he said, all of a sudden I felt my spirit leaving my body. He said, I looked down and I saw my body. I saw the doctors and what they were doing, the nurses. And he said, then in an instant... I was carried away and I was in the presence of all my family and all my friends that had gone to heaven before me. 
And he said that there was a group and they parted and he said in the middle he saw Jesus and Jesus came walking to him. And Jesus looked at him and said, your time is not yet. And he said, then instantly he was back in his body. And he said the doctors had pronounced him dead. It had been about seven minutes. And they had done everything they could. And they, he was just laying there. They were cleaning up and fixing up. And he said, all of a sudden, I was in my body and I sat up on the table and I said, he's alive! I saw him! He's alive! <laughs> he said he scared everybody in that room half to death. But he said, I began to tell them what I saw in the presence of God and in heaven and what God said to me and then instantly and he said what convinced them was the fact that I was covered and I couldn't see everything that was going on in the room but I began to tell the doctor where he was when I died and what he was doing I told the nurses what they were doing when I died and all of a sudden tears were coming down the cheeks of the nurses and he right there in that hospital room he prayed the prayer with her of salvation and led her to the Lord. Hallelujah. He's alive! And we're going to be instantly in His presence the moment we leave this life. The third thing I want us to see is in Matthew 27, verse 46. Jesus is still on the cross in agony, having a difficult time breathing. And he says, and about, it says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this verse is a difficult verse that theologians uh, talk and discuss about and there's, there's different uh, things that they focus on. And the key thing is, did God really forsake Jesus or not? And there's very good arguments on both sides. And so when it comes to this passage, I'm not going to be dogmatic and say no. And there's reasons why. In Psalm 22, Jesus is quoting that. It's a psalm of David. And in that psalm, David begins his psalm that way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But later in that psalm, David acknowledges that God hadn't forsaken him, but he just felt that way. And so there are those that take that to mean that Jesus knew that psalm and he knew that even though he felt forsaken, that he really wasn't. But the Bible also teaches us that in Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so the, the debate goes back and forth. But what I want you to know today, church, without any doubt, is, is that Jesus did pay for everything that needed to be paid for our salvation. Amen? And, listen to this, church, we will never be forsaken. Because of what Jesus did. Listen to this. Joshua, God tells Joshua. He says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And King David wrote this in Psalm 37. He says, I have been young 
and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. So David said, I've never seen his children forsaken. Then in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, all scripture. If you've been here very long, you've heard me quote this. And you've heard me go into the depths of it, but we have many visitors here today, so I want to go into the depth of that verse. In the Greek language, it is very, very rich. It's not easy to take a single word in Greek and translate it into a single word in English many times. And the three prominent words in this promise, I will never leave you and never forsake you, are never leave and forsake and if you take those three words in the greek and you study them never is a compounded negative it's a forever never in the english language a lot of times we use the word never and we we mean well that probably won't happen it's never that way in the greek it's a forever negative a compounded negative a forever never And so if you take the the word leave in the Greek and the word forsake in the Greek and you see the different ways it was used, this is how it comes out if you take all the richness of the Greek. I will never, no not ever, no never give up on you, abandon you, leave you behind, cause you not to survive, leave you helpless, nor shall I ever relax concerning keeping my presence with you hallelujah in in that powerful church we will never be forsaken we will never be forsaken we will never be forsaken and the resurrection verifies that the fourth thing i want us to see this morning we have constant care constant care john chapter 19 verse 26 says When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the the disciple, John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. We see Jesus caring from the cross. He's caring about his mother. He's caring about us from the cross. And what's interesting in this passage is that we need to understand why Jesus did that. It's because his father Joseph, most Bible scholars all agree, had passed away before Jesus' three and a half years of ministry. Why? Because he's never mentioned, and when Jesus' family is mentioned, they mention his mother, his brother, his sisters. But they never mention Joseph. Church history also says that John did take Mary into his home and he took care of her, that she lived a long and fruitful life. And so it brings to mind the question, why did God choose Joseph to be the earthly father of Jesus if he knew that he was going to die before the most difficult part of Jesus' life? Because we like to think of of a loving father being there supporting, encouraging. I'm thankful that that my father lived to be uh, 81 years old. 
And I had him for many years. And I could call him on the phone and say, hey, Dad, I'm going through this. And he'd give me some wisdom and advice and pray for me. Jesus didn't have that. And so why would God do that? And it's simple. It's because we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, the Word of God says, Therefore, in all things he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. There's nothing that Jesus didn't experience in suffering. Nothing we're going to go through. That he isn't able. He, he lost someone that was close in his family. A father. He saw how that devastated Mary losing her husband and his brothers and sisters losing a father. He saw that. He went through that. He suffered and went through these things in life so that he could be a, a high priest that is, that is merciful and kind and can lead us through. So I want you to know today, no matter what you're suffering with, no matter how difficult it is today, you may be facing something that's just overwhelming. Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He knows what you're going through and he will aid you to come through it in victory. Amen. The fifth thing I want us to see is in John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Well, we immediately take that and think, well, yeah, Jesus had to be thirsty. His body was losing fluid. He'd gone through all of the scourging and the torture. But there's another way to look at this. I think not only was he physical thirsty, but he had come to the point he was spiritual ready to drink the cup of his father. In John chapter 17, verse 21, remember when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane praying. He, it says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one with us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus wanted to fulfill the plan of the Father so that we could be one with him and the Father. He also prayed in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he says, Father, if it is your will, this cup, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Did you hear that expression? He said, if this cup can be taken away from me. In John chapter 19, verse 29, we see again, it says, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And in verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he received it. I believe he was... It was prophetically speaking, he was receiving the sins, the sour wine upon himself. So I, I don't think it was just physical thirst. I think he had come to the place, he was saying, Father, let that cup come upon me. I'm ready to taste death. 
The sixth thing I want us to see, where before that, Romans chapter 5, one more thing. It's talking about atonement, complete atonement. That's what the fifth point I wanted to make. In Romans chapter 5, verse 11, it says, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's also translated atonement. Atonement means reconciliation. So we're not enmities against God. We're not enemies against Him. Now we are friends. Now we're one with Him. Now we're part of the family because of Jesus and what He did. Jesus reconciled us to the Father. Aren't you thankful for that today? The sixth point is totally finished. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It means that a transaction had taken place. It had been finalized. That's the word. It's a business term. It is finished. And they would use it in that sense when a business deal had been completed. And that's what Jesus was saying. It's totally complete. The transaction is finished for our salvation. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Everything we do for the Lord and for the kingdom of God is out of a heart of gratitude. The work is completed. In, in verse uh, 3 of Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, now you say, well, pastor, how was it completed at the foundation of the world and yet Jesus just completed it? Revelation 13 and 8 says, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It speaks to the eternal existence of God. God has always been, He is right now, and He will always be God on the throne and in control. That's never going to change, church. And it's difficult for us as, as finite creatures and limited to a few short years in this world to wrap our minds around that. But God is eternal. And this is speaking about the fact from the beginning, God had a plan and He accomplished that plan. And He stepped in to, to, uh, ter- to time. God, Scripture says, inhabits eternity timelessness but we know we live in a universe consisting of space time and matter and God became part of his creation he became human to make the sacrifice for us that we could live with him for eternity the final thing I want us to look at today is found in Luke chapter 23 verse 46 and the seventh point today is Eternal commitment. Eternal commitment. In Luke 23, 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Having said this, He breathed His last. What I want us to see there is the fact that Jesus committed completely to the Father's will, committed His Spirit to Him in death. Church, you and I need to make sure on this Resurrection Sunday 
then our lives are committed to Christ. They're committed to God. Why? Well, I want to explain that. In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, it says, Many believed in his name. They believed in his name. That means they believed everything that Jesus stood for and proclaimed to be. When they saw the signs which he did. So they saw the miracles of Jesus and they believed in his name. But listen to this, verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't commit himself to them. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. God knows our hearts. The Bible says even the demons believe and tremble. It's more than just believing there's a God. Some people think, well, I'm okay because I I don't ever go to church, but I love the the creation that God's given us, I believe there is a God, so I believe in Him. It's okay. Others even say, well, well, I believe in Jesus, and I believe He's the Son of God. But the question is, have we committed our lives to Him as Lord and Savior? Do we understand that our Creator knows the very best for us and wants the very best for us? Amen? And when we commit our lives to Him, He guides and directs every step of our life. And our life is going to be the best it can possibly be. So on this Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus brings all these things into our understanding. These things were accomplished for us. And I'm going to read one more verse. 1 Corinthians 15 and 17 says, And if Christ is not risen... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Did you hear that? The resurrection verifies that He accomplished everything God required for our salvation, for the removal of our sins. The next verse says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if we just believe that Jesus is just for this life, that He didn't raise from the dead, church, we have no hope. Church, I pray that you never doubt the resurrection of Jesus. In past Easter services, we've gone through and showed all the evidence that points to the fact that Jesus did rise again. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. He walked with them. He talked with them. He ate with them. And that same Savior has promised He'll never leave you and never forsake you. He's committed to you, but you and I need to make sure we're committed to Him. I want the worship team to come if they will. And I want you to stand with me On this Resurrection Sunday, I want to ask you the question, are you committed 
to the God that created you? Are you committed to His plan for your life? I had a lady years ago that she was so concerned that if she said yes to God and committed her life to Him, that God was going to call her to the deepest part of the African jungle. Seriously. And it hindered her from taking that step and saying, God, I just surrender it all to you. I'm committing my life to you. And I want to tell you, church, years ago I committed my life to Jesus 100%. I was a Texas boy. I didn't think I'd ever leave Texas. And one day God called me to Alaska. The year was 1994, I believe. And you know what? I had people come when I told them that God had called us to Alaska. We had people that would come to Melinda and say, oh, your kids won't get a good education up there. Those, those, those village schools, those small, tiny places. They said, oh, you're going to freeze to death. The last Sunday I was in a, a friend's church and it, it was mostly, mostly black people and I loved him. He was an awesome pastor. He has a great church. But it was so interesting that after the service we, that he announced that we were going to go to Alaska and we had, I think Melinda had every woman in the church surrounding her and crying saying, oh, I'm so sorry. How are you going to endure that? Church, when you commit your life to God, it is the greatest adventure life will ever be. Amen. It is. You won't have regrets. Your life is going to be the best that it can possibly be. I've preached the gospel in Kodiak. I've preached the gospel in, in, in Wrangell, in southeast Alaska, in, in outside of uh, on the peninsula, I've, I've preached the gospel in Anchor Point, in Nanilchik, and in Homer, and I've preached the gospel in the valley. I've preached the gospel up north in villages. And I tell you, every time I have an opportunity, I, don't, I love to go to the villages. I may have 10 people in a village church, but I preach my heart out because the gospel never changes. Amen. And everyone needs the res- to understand what the resurrection of Jesus means for their hearts and lives. And I'm passionate. Some people get passionate about football. And I don't have a problem with that. You may like the Seahawks. I think they're sea chickens. I don't really like them. (laughs) That was for you, Pastor Harry. He's a Seahawk fan. But think about it. You get excited at basketball games. You get excited, church, at football games. And there's birthday parties. There's all kinds of celebrations. And there's nothing wrong with being excited and celebrating. But the greatest event in history took place on the cross when Jesus died. And then the third day, he rose again. I don't get excited about anything compared to that. And I'm excited about my new grandbaby today. But when it comes to total excitement, there's only one thing that's going to cause me to do my happy dance. Amen? And that's the resurrection of my Savior and what it speaks and means to me. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I want to ask our prayer team to 
gather around the walls at the back of the sanctuary and together at the front. And we're not going to take long. But I want to give everybody here an opportunity to come and to pray with one of our prayer team members. If you're here today, maybe you're facing a great mountain in life. A great problem. It, maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe it's a, you're having trouble in your marriage or with your kids. Maybe it's a problem with a friend. Maybe it's a financial need that's just so great you don't know how you're going to be able to take care of this need. Maybe it's a physical need. Maybe you're struggling from something physically. Whatever your need is today, and especially if you've never committed your life to Christ, will you please come today and say yes to Jesus? Say, Lord, I give you all my heart. All that I am, Lord, I surrender to you. The worship team's going to to come and or they're going to play. And I want you, if you don't have a prayer need, just to close your eyes and begin to worship the Lord and thank Him today. But if you have a prayer need, there's several at the back and Melinda and I are going to be up here and Ardell's up here and we'd love to pray for you today. Will you come? And I search the world It couldn't fill me Man's empty praise And treasures that fade Are never enough